Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Macario Naimi, CMO of ASAP, an AI solution for customer experience performance, and Brian Goodwin, co-founder, president, and CRO at Torch Pro, a sports media company changing the way world-class athletes and fans interact digitally. Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. This is the some, some number of the category creator podcast episode. I'm really excited to have Brian and Macario here as guests for the podcast. Um, Brian, let's start with you. Maybe you can do a quick introduction on yourself and the company you work for. Yeah, Gil, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Brian Goodwin, um, co-founder and president of TorchPro.com. We're a sports media company changing the way that athletes, fans, and brands interact. Um, before TorchPro, I spent 15 years between two early stage startups, FlipKey.com and then Drizzly.com, which I'm sure we'll dive into at some point along the way. So again, thanks for having me and excited to be here. Big fan of Drizzly. Yeah. Uh, Macario, you're next. Yeah, uh, thanks, Gil, and, and, and nice to meet you, Brian, as well. Macario Nami, I'm uh, the Chief Marketing Officer of, uh, of ASAP. Uh, what we do is we bring um, um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to contact centers to make the human agent uh, significantly more productive. Uh, so trying to replicate how agents make uh, decisions in serving customers and trying to help every other agent be as equally good as the very best agent in the organization. Um, my own background, I spent 20 more, 20 more years, 20 plus, plus more uh, years in enterprise software, uh, mostly in startups, um, uh, including a company called Jasper. I was very focused on the Internet of Things. We got, you know, I've been part of Cisco, uh, early uh, uh, person at WebEx, uh, way, way, way back uh, in the day. Um, and so lots of fantastic experiences and looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. And Brian, I know you're in North Carolina, half an hour from Charlotte. Uh, Makari, where are you located? So I'm uh, I'm based in San Francisco, uh, but I'm actually spending the month of uh, month out here in the summer in, in San Diego. So uh, this is a replication of some of the view that I have outside my window. <laughs> nice, very cool, awesome. So we always start with a cheer. Hopefully, in the next forty-eight minutes, we will finish at least two drinks. Uh, <laughs> cheers and happy sure. Friday! Thank you for joining. Yeah. Cool. Well, in this podcast, we like to um, spend some time on category creation, sometimes trying to break um, tech companies' absolute bullshits that are not true, that we know not to be, not to be uh, the real-life story, and then also talk about some absolute truths that you did learn in your, in your experience. So um, let's start with category creation because that's the name of the podcast. Makari, maybe you can start us off. When you hear that tagline, that name, category creation, uh, what comes to mind right away? Um, so the thing that I think about the most when people say category creation uh, is uh, not everybody can own a category. Not everything deserves its own unique category. And uh, that is a marketer's dream. Uh, to be able to say we are the category king, right? Um, but the truth is, uh, there's a lot more marketing attempts uh, that simply just shouldn't be. 
uh, and it's perfectly fine to go into existing categories, own them, dominate, redefine them, and you can make a lot of money, build a highly successful business. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we get a little overexcited about thinking we can all create our own unique category. <laughs> Love that. Definitely heard that before. Thank you. That's cool. Uh, and I, I also agree to that. Brian, what about you? When you hear category creation, what comes to mind? And for me, it's it's sort of education, right? Like we didn't define, Flipkey didn't define the travel category, but you know, vacation rentals were a part of that category that were very underutilized. And I think 15 years later, it's hard to imagine even the world where vacation rentals weren't as prevalent and prominent as they are today. But when we were out there evangelizing that vacation rentals were gonna be a thing, property management companies were telling us like, you know, um, they're going to still use their catalogs and travelers on the other side didn't even know that you could rent a house you can rent a whole house and so same sort of with drizzly right um buying alcohol is not a new category but buying it on your smartphone and having it delivered is sort of a, a new way to look at an older category and so i i think of education as um that's the first thing that comes to my mind changing behavior which is a, i think an extremely hard thing to do yes indeed yeah. that's cool uh i was just talking to a friend of mine who, who created the first uh, blockchain technology for NFTs before NFTs was a, was a thing. And guess what? He did not win the market. Uh, the last company like from a year ago that came up with it. And I was just telling him like, Trent, shit, like you came up with it like a long time ago. I was like, yeah, too early. And I think many times to your point, uh, this is the situation and maybe you have to educate or, or, or just wait patiently to you know, survive until the market agrees with you. Makari, when you say, um, you know, it's not always like, yeah, maybe CMOs always want to do it, but it's not always the case that you need to create a category. Uh, when, how do you, how do you decide? Like, what's the one question you ask yourself to determine, you know, like, let's say you just joined a new startup or, uh, or whatever, an existing company, and you have to determine what CEO asks, we need to create a category and you say yes or no. And this is why, because I asked that question. Yeah, it, 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 it's an excellent question. And I think the, the, um, the, the criteria is, is, is really trying to understand why you think you need to be able to create a, a category. And sometimes if we think about, well, we want to because it's good for us, that generally doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and a lot of times that's kind of where the enthusiasm lies or the justification is it's really more of just like a marketing strategy or a way to promote yourself better or to be able to change the, the criteria used in the buying decision. Uh, but the truth is, uh, if you're uh, if you're if you look at the landscape of existing categories, there may be some that are just so old that are just simply ripe for disruption. And it's a wonderful place to go in and sort of redefine what that is. The the vacation rental one is a perfect example, right? That you didn't need to create a new category, but they completely redominated and redefined what you know vacation rentals should be. So it's really looking at what is what is the lens from the buyer point of view or the the consumer point of view. And uh, can you educate them enough to say the way you've been thinking about this, think about it a different way. You should do it. It can be done a totally different way. Or are you truly creating something that they never really thought about before? Or there's some unique problem that hadn't really ever been solved. And I think that's, that's really what we're trying to decide is look at it from the buyer's perspective. And do you really need to create something new or redefine an existing one? Um, that, that's, that to me is probably the, the first question I would ask ourselves. And how do you how do you separate between what you want and what the customer wants? Because 
you have a company, it's a for-profit company. If you think it's going to make it easier to make more money faster by redefining the, the buying criteria, like you, you mentioned accurately before, how do you separate that from what you want and what you think you need to do to make the biggest company, the, the unicorn $1 billion outcome from actually understanding what the customer wants and how, how they think about it? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it also, it also think about the, the, the constituent that you're also marketing to, or that you're trying to sell to. So, um, uh, Salesforce is a good example. They're a good example for many, many things associated with category creation, right. And very cliche, but, um, but in those very early days, uh, Benioff would talk about, you know, SaaS and he would be promoting SaaS and he would say, you know, we're about the enablement of, or the end of software. But the people selling, the people who were actually working the phones were not saying, hey, would you like to buy the end of software? They were selling, you have a contact manager, let me replace your contact manager. They sold a very, to an existing category and a very well-known and understood product. Uh, and so, you know, for Benioff, thinking about the media, the press, the analyst community, the investor community is going to be different than, than, um, than the people that are actually the buyers. And so he wasn't trying to create a category for the individual sales manager managing five or six reps. Those people were just trying to sell exactly what they already know and solve a very specific problem. And, uh, but he, he did it in, a, in sort of a roundabout way, which I think is actually quite, quite beautiful. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, I wonder what Mark Benioff will say to that. Brian, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> I am curious too. Maybe one day I'll have him here. Brian, when you think about educating the market, how do you decide whether it should the, the market should be educated at the right time or or just go and ride an existing wave? Yeah, I mean, it, you can only try so hard to educate the market. You know, use the Drizzly example. We pounded the drum for a long, long time that um, alcohol delivery was a better way. And um, we often talked about time, the time that you saved, um, maybe the ability to shop more products, but for a lot of people going to the store wasn't broken, you know, it worked. Um, and so then the pandemic comes along, right. And it forces a shift in the way that they, they perceive their daily activities. They're forced to then try something that we told them was a better way, or we thought it was a better way. Um, and then through trying it and experiencing it and realizing, okay, this does save me some time, or maybe this gives me more selection or better price. They then change their behavior that way. So I think I think you have to you have to educate both sides of the market. I think for us at Drizzly too, we were also responsible for educating the retailer side of the marketplace, right? Because without our retail partners, and and working with them to enable the technology so that consumers could buy, that infrastructure and marketplace never would have set up. So we had to educate both sides, and the retailer conversation is very different. Hey. You know, the future of the way people purchase alcohol is going to be digital. Well, there's a lot of lo local retailers that that's a hard thing to understand, but then you start to get them and, and it's the marriage of all of those things. So I think you have to educate, but I think you said it earlier, Gil, like timing matters. And sometimes you can't, um, you can't dictate the timing and survival, surviving long enough to, to, to match up with the timing um, is, a, is a key, key, key skill, if it's a skill. Very interesting. Uh, two follow-up questions. One, did 2020 change the, the world for, for, I mean, you change the world for sure, but for Drizzly, did that make a category creation and making that case that, yeah, everyone is going to buy online and save a lot of time? Did it make that change? Was that kind of a, a critical change? Absolutely. I mean, on the consumer side in particular, because, and side. again, oftentimes people would say, well, you know, 
you, you, you got lucky, you know, you hate to look at the pandemic and think anything, anybody benefited from it. Cause it was a terrible time. Um, but the reality was that we had 4,000 retail liquor stores in place at the time when consumers needed it. And so that infrastructure that took seven years to build was able to withstand all the demand that was immediately coming. You remember, I mean, it's, it wasn't so long ago and it's easy to forget. I think sometimes people shut it out, but like, remember you couldn't leave, you know, like shelter in place, you couldn't leave your house. And so, and then liquor stores in many communities were deemed um, essential businesses. So they were able to only do delivery. And so then all of a sudden, like with, with no other option, you know, imagine if we didn't have the technology built or imagine if we decided that day that this was something that we wanted to do, we could have never done it because it took seven years to get there. So it was a huge tipping point on the consumer behavior change, I would say, um, without a doubt. Inflection point. Um, and then all these people realized that, you know, this is pretty good. This is pretty easy. I think grocery delivery was very similar. I think there was a lot of those businesses where, where education changed fast. Interesting. I didn't even realize. I have been a customer of Drizzly for years. Uh, I think since you guys, you're, an early, you're what we would consider an early adopter. Yeah, I got my first <laughs> crown uh, early, early ago. But uh, that's cool. That's that's interesting to hear. Um, and you're talking about retailers. Did retailers? And that's an interesting subject in general. Did retailers, especially because you have this two, two-sided marketplace, did retailers uh, find you competition at any point? Did they consider your competition? Certainly, I think one of the most interesting historical evolutions of Drizzly was when when we started, every retailer sort of had like their own um, exclusive territory, right? We would say, this is your store in the North End, and then we're going to put one in in South Boston, and they're not those zones aren't going to overlap. And then as demand started to increase, we realized like retailer capacity was a gating item. Like if a retailer only had two drivers and they got 10 orders, like, there was a capacity issue. And so our solve to that was to like allow multiple stores to cover the same area. Well, that didn't make the retailers that originally had the exclusive territory very happy. But then the, the, again, going back and the evolution of all of that was, well, Hey, you know, why would a consumer choose to buy from you if they had two options based on your service, just like anything else, what's your selection, what's your inventory look like? How quickly do you deliver your product and how friendly are your drivers? Like those are the things that are going to win in the real world. This is just, this is just the new real world. And so I think they all evolved. They evolved much more rapidly than you would have expected. Um, so yes, I don't think, I think they looked at us as potentially competition. They looked at the way our environment had them competing with their other retailers. Um, but at the end of the day, we were building technology that they alone could have never built, right? And so they realized that like, without, without plugging into our infrastructure, they couldn't have done delivery at all. And so we were enabling and empowering them to do it. And then the cream rose to the top. Oftentimes, the best offline re retailers were the best online retailers because it was their business that um, it was their people and their business that was successful, not how they were doing it. Yeah, I, had, I had a similar model, uh, a startup that I worked for nine, nine, no, sorry, eleven years uh, called Jasper, and and this is one where I was able to actually create a category, uh, and was very fortunate. Um, and uh, it was a, um, a connectivity service platforms, and uh, eventually we basically turn it into an IOT platform as that, as that phrase sort of started to, to come to pass. But we actually sat in between the telecommunication providers. So think AT&T and the enterprises who were embedding connectivity in their, their things. 
So if you were, you know, General Motors and you have a OnStar service, then you're basically using our software to control your uh, your AT&T connection, your AT&T SIM cards and, and access on the network. And there's a very delicate balance between they were the ones who were actually supplying, but we were the, actually the enabling technology that allowed these two parties to come together and both get their needs met. Uh, in the case of General Motors, they have very different needs than what a cell phone uh, user would be in terms of what they need off of the network, especially when there's nobody holding the, 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 the phone or the SIM card. Uh, and uh, on the AT&T side, all of their billing infrastructure and all of their systems are not designed for cars, right? Or for things that are being charged pennies or nickels uh, versus the 30, 40, $60. And, um, and it was one of the things that it was a constant struggle because we were the key focal point that made a lot of that possible for the enterprises, the General Motors of the time. But, uh, but the suppliers, the telcos really wanted to control the whole relationship. And it was a, it was a constant friction uh, to uh, to sort of make that that work. And it sounds sounds a little similar, probably not quite as as much friction. But at some point, you know, who has the bigger brand? Who has the one who has a higher degree of influence on the buyer? And uh, that that created a lot of heartache for us, as we said, in between the, these two behemoth kind of companies, right? Very interesting. Uh, were you able to solve it? Like, were you able to eventually bring that innovation and still figure out a way for both business models to work? So we got the business model to work and, and uh, we, we eventually sold to Cisco who actually has a lot more capabilities. And so we, we sold to them in 2016 for about a billion and a half. And so it was a good, a wonderful exit all around. Um, the, uh, but I will say uh, when you have um, the supplier on the other end, uh, they limited our ambition. And so that one thing was very, very tough. There were some things we wanted to do uh, and they said, no, we don't want you to do that. Uh, and because they held that supply, they basically had a chokehold, right? In terms, and we really had our ambition contained. So that was kind of the downside in our world to sort of that two-sided business model is we had a lot, we had suppliers who were very, very powerful and were really critical to our success. Uh, but as a result, we, all, we were basically capped because at some point they said, we don't want you to do these things. We want to do it ourselves. We want you out of the picture, that, those kinds of things, which is, uh, which is really tough. It was, very, it was very tough. I want to switch gears to like a different subject. I want to, I want to ask one follow-up question, but it sounds like both of you are, you know, you, you had a two-sided marketplace. You, had you essentially had existing players in the space you were working in, but, uh, and you kind of had to convince everyone in the space that the new way is the right way to go. <clears throat> and then some people had less power, some people had more power. Uh, how do you manage that to bring that innovation? If you had to, uh, if, if you had to, if you go back and you're, and you're thinking, like, okay, there was one thing we did that whether it was creating a new category or reinventing the category, redesigning it, was there one thing that you did that got people both sides, even if they had a little bit of conflicting interest in mind, what was the one thing that you did that got people uh, to say, yeah, this is the future. We're willing to walk towards it. Maybe not full still they had, but we'll walk towards it. What is that thing? Makario, maybe we can start with you. Um, you know, for, for us, we had to um, solve a problem that neither, neither side actually was able to solve on their own. And, um, and you know, that, that was sort of our... You know, outside of you know good technology, good features, et cetera, that was the one sort of piece of magic that was really unique to us. Um, 
the, the aggregation of thing producers, right? Whether it be cars or thermostats or whatever it may be, um, didn't have the ability to go change the infrastructure that is used by the AT&Ts of the world for the way that they provision or build services. They just have no influence on that whatsoever. And inside of these telecommunication providers, uh, they had no ability to go serve these enterprises on a global basis and these multiple different countries uh, uh, for a product that is basically nickels and dimes compared to tens and twenties. And, um, and so we solved something that neither party could actually solve on their own. Um, and that's really where we carved out a really unique space for us. I see. Okay. So creating that thing that none of them could do before. So they really needed you. Um, is it the same for you, Brian? I think I heard a little bit of that, but I'll, I'll let you answer for your own. Yeah, it's definitely a piece of it. It's an interesting and a good question. Um, I think one, so one of the things, if I think about one thing, it was like, it was kind of like brutal honesty with empathy, but like, I kind of always got the sense that this was, this is where the ball is kind of going, right? This is where the, this is where things are heading. And, you know, as someone who's, who just turned 40, who graduated around the time when Facebook is coming, just digital, right? And the internet and the evolution of the internet, it's sort of like, you know, my father's generation, I don't think saw it as clearly and obviously as maybe our generation did. And then I think the next generation that's coming behind us is going to see a whole bunch of stuff that we don't see coming at all. Right. So it was sort of like, we used to use this like in, and again, in an empathetic way, but it was sort of the ostrich with the head in the sand analogy. Like, do you want to pick your head up one day? And, and a lot of these are small business owners. Do you want to pick your head up one day and be out of business? So like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You can try it and maybe it's not for you or we're not the right partner. Um, but worse than that is pretending like this isn't happening and doing nothing about it. And that was the thing that resonated the most with, with partners on, on all sides. Interesting. I think many, many technology companies, I think, battle with this. You know, they have this struggle of the, maybe not even the legacy players, but just like the old way of doing things. There are some who are considered, you know, good players and they, 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 they prefer to not, they prefer to not hear about it. What was it, Blockbuster that said that, uh, Netflix is just going to be as small, like no one is going to do this. And then, you know, like fast forward a few years and they're, they're out completely. Great. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers, folks. Awesome. Sponsorships. All right. Completely changing gears. Category creation is great. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion about it. I think it's very interesting because many times it is kind of being forced on CMOs from the CEOs, on CEOs from the VCs, and the list goes on and on. But let's talk about something completely different. You both worked in startups for quite some time. Um, Brian, I'll start with you. Let's think about, if you think about your biggest hashtag fail moment where you cursed a lot, lost some sleep, and you know got over it afterwards, but one of the biggest fail moments where you, you just screwed up something by, by an action that you did or just like a wrong conclusion. What? Personally, personally or, or company or both? I like both. Yeah, I think so. The, so the, the first one that comes to mind is like was when so I, when I started at Flipkey as their first employee, I was two years out of college, but I like I started, you know, I think I signed a 
$10 an hour social contracts, you know, like, I, you know, it was one of those types of roles, but I quickly like sort of found my sea legs. Anyway, the quick and short version is as we started to add new people, I, I was like, I, I was a little bit like unwelcoming to like a new employee. And I didn't really know why. I think it was more because like I, there was like the core group of founders and early employees. And it was like this really tight knit group and it was expanding and people started to look different than me and act different than me. And, and um, I just wasn't as nice as I should have been. Right. And I remember very vividly being taken to lunch by the CEO that day. And, um, and he said, you know, do you know what XYZ employee does? And I was like, no. He's like, well, that's your first problem. And he's like, you know, secondly, he described the role that that employee was coming in to fill and that I knew nothing about anything that that person was doing. And, and I didn't even know why it was so important to the business. But the point, you know, the lesson that I learned, right, was like, it's just it's just not about me. And um, and, you know, don't don't judge things that you don't understand. And so I always from that point on sort of like um, tried to like tried to like really understand what was going on. So that was like a, per that was a personal lesson. I think in terms of like failing at business, there's a, there's a, there's a, the list of those goes on and on and on and on. I think um, it's the stuff, the personal stuff that, that you learn. And that was an early lesson. I mean, that was 16 years ago now. And it's still, I can remember the moment. I can remember where I was sitting like it was yesterday. That lunch with that CEO. You know, that's so interesting. You brought it up. Uh, there could be all kinds of answers to this one, but you brought up something that I think most, CEOs and most companies struggle with, you have this tight group that you were mentioning that went through, you know, highs and lows, you know, kind of went through battles, you know, like, so you bonded on the adversity. You know, excuse my language ahead of time, who the fuck is this person coming in <laughs> and like coming into this group? They don't know what we've been through. And yeah. so sometimes it creates this, uh, you know, kind of divider and you almost want to put them through a grilling process to just see that they can go through what you went through. I don't know if that's what something similar to, to what you refer to, uh, but it's interesting that the, you were, first of all, the CEO was, was humble enough to, you know, have the conversation with you and ask the question versus just apply judgment right away. And then yep. two, you remember that 16 years back. So maybe, maybe you can react to that a little bit and, and uh, maybe even give an example of who that person was and how you reacted actually. Yeah, the per the new employee or the mm -hmm, the new employee and both. Yeah, I mean, so so the the new employee was a was a quality assurance engineer, right? And like, I didn't know what a QA engineer did at the time. I think, um, you know, and and they didn't do anything incorrect. Like, they weren't even, you know, what I mean. It was just it, to your earlier point. It was it was this idea of like, well, we built what's here. And now, you know, and, and I think, Makara, you can probably attest to this, right? Having been at these startups for such a long period of time. Now, here I am 15 years later, having gone from zero to seven years with that company and then starting over and doing another seven years. And you quickly realize, like, this is part of the, this is just part of how this thing works, right? And so, um, yeah, it becomes very obvious. But I think the other lesson there is just like when you're young, you just don't understand. There's so much that you don't understand that only experience can teach. Um, and that's why I think, you know, podcasts like this and just, you know, even with our new business, a lot of what we talk about is inspiring the next generation. And so the ability to learn from the people who have already fucked these things up, right? So that you don't fuck them up is, I think, a powerful, I think it's a powerful thing. Yeah. It, it, I had a similar experience, actually. And, and it's funny you say that, Gil, because 
I'll go back to Jasper as an example. I mean, we went through torture, right? And there was this core group and we became very, very tight, right? And, and to this day, I mean, these are my brothers and sisters and I love them dearly. And I haven't worked with them in several years now, but it's like, it, it's just that kind of bond. Um, and we would, we actually churned out a lot of new people that we would try to bring in to make our team stronger. And it took a while, but people would give us feedback just saying, do you guys know how hard you are on new people? You know how hard like it is to break into your group? And, but, but we're the leaders of the business, right? It's just like the executive team. It's like the executive team shouldn't be that way, right? And it, and, and it, it took a while for us to sort of like say, we got to stop being this way. And a lot of it was just like, Part of it is, yes, we've been through hell together. A lot of it is, are you as smart as we are? Are you as good as we are? Like, we're going to put you to the test to make sure you belong, right? To the, to the point you were making uh, uh, earlier, Gail. And we turned out good people as a result because they're just like, we, they could never break through. And, and now I look back on it and um, it, it was a bad thing to do. We were actually hurting the business as a result of that. I love the bond and I, and I love the, uh, the, the familial aspect of all, all of what we did together but we really did hurt the business by not being more open and giving these newer folks a chance to really shine. And maybe we could be operating differently. And we never really thought that way, I think collectively as a group. Uh, so it was a really key learning lesson. Love that. I, I myself went through this learning uh, a couple of years ago. I remember being in an interview and seeing how one of the person was just reading the interview and I was like, ah, oh, shit, this is painful. This is not good at all. And, uh, but of course it's like, you it's like the balance between respecting and honoring what you've gone through also and understanding that the business is growing it's part of the business it's part of the deal and you have to be cool about new people coming different people who haven't gone through the same thing uh very interesting what is your uh, own hashtag fail moment that that you want to share oh gosh uh, i'll uh um uh just to kind of talk a little bit about youth right i uh I came out of college in the late nineties and the dot-com boom. Uh, so I'm a little old now. And, uh, and of course at that time, everybody was going to be a multimillionaire. Everybody was brilliant. I mean, the amount of money, the amount of money you see in, in tech today is pretty damn high. It was even like worse back then. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I quit after 2000 in the sort of middle, middle 2000, I quit my dot-com job. I was, working for, uh, for, for Lycos. I got acquired into Lycos for any people who are old enough to remember that as an actual search engine. Um, and I said, I'm gonna go be an entrepreneur and I'm gonna go raise millions of dollars and I could do this because anybody can do this and I'm gonna be a gazillionaire. And um, I was so freaking naive, man. I had no idea how to solve a problem, how to source a problem. I didn't put in the time or the effort to really understand uh, what it takes to, to, to walk in the shoes of the people you're trying to solve for. And I would go out and just make shit up and try and do like VC pitches. And to their credit, they at least saw through my BS and I never got funded. But they actually said, oh, don't worry, you'll get funded. Somebody will somebody give you cash, I was like, which is insane. So this was now sort of the doc, it was the beginning of the dot-com crash. So thankfully, so I, I ended up spending eight months uh, basically screwing around. And, um, and it wasn't a colossal failure, but it was a slap in the face to me later to say, dude, there's no skating past this. You have to actually do the work. You have to like put in the time. There's a level of, of effort that goes above and beyond 
being an employee if you actually want to be an entrepreneur or work for yourself. And, uh, and I'm actually, I'm not an entrepreneur, right? And, you know, I have great admiration. I work for them. Uh, and, uh, and I know what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. And, uh, but it took that period of time. And thankfully, I learned that lesson early in life. But uh, there's no, there's no, there's no free, uh, free skating on this one, you know? Um, it was tough. I love that. I think many people will, will, will God bless you for, for what you said. I think that's, that's, that's a great insight, the entrepreneur. No, it doesn't matter. I think you're, you're probably right there and there in the battle together with the entrepreneur with that, you know, with that point of view. So we talked about the hashtag fail moment. Thank you for that. Uh, very insightful. Let's talk about a different one. What is, uh, you know, you worked for startups for a while, Macario and, uh, and Brian, you as well. What is, piece uh, like a kind of a, I don't know, misconception, something that is constantly being talked about, constantly being promoted by VentureBeat and TechCrunch and Business Insider and all those publications that every time you read, you're like, fuck this shit. This is bullshit. Every time I've been through a startup, it has been completely different. It's, an, it's, a wrong, it's a wrong thing to teach the people who are about to come in into this journey. Excuse my language again. Like, what do you think uh, there's one that you personally feel very strongly about that you know is a, what seems to be a truth that is absolute bullshit, like completely untruth that, that you've experienced? Uh, Brian, I see you thinking. Makari, I'm going to start with you. Um, sure. I mean, having... Uh, so uh, my, my, first, my first reaction when you were asking the question was uh, what's the thing that you see that's absolute bullshit? And I say AI, you know, but five years ago it would have been cloud and five, you know, it's like whatever, whatever the hype is. And, um, but, but actually thinking about more of just the, the, the world of startups and having worked in one and what's, what, what's the reality. Um, the, uh, the, the, the thing that I think most people don't quite realize um, is uh, how hands-on you have, you have to be in understanding the problem that you're solving. And so, uh, you know, whenever, whenever somebody quotes me a TAM or whenever somebody quotes me an analyst report from Gartner, it's like, these people don't understand. You know, there's, there's lies, there's damn lies, there's statistics and there's TAM, like it has nothing to do with the reality. Like it's, uh, and then um, you could only really, to me, where I've, where I've seen success is when you so deeply understand the customer's environment more than they understand it. And you have a level of insight that no other vendor has, that's when you can actually deliver unique value. That's when you have something that's truly unique that can sustain. Um, and the press never covers that. If, it, if, it's, if it's mentioned in an analyst report, it's too late. Everybody already knows it, right? Um, and so uh, I guess it's just the superficiality of understanding what problem you're actually solving and the, the reality of the buyer, the reality of the customer. Uh, it, it can only be bottoms up. It can never, ever be top down in terms of how you learn it. That's been my experience. I love that. I think it, that sentence you said, if it's already, uh, if it's already like in an article where, where you read it and it's like an, an obvious trend or an obvious problem, it's already too late because then everyone else knows about it. Wonderful. Brian. Yeah, I, I don't know that I read a lot of the publications that you're referring to. Um, I what do publications think, do, you, do you, what publications do you read that that that, that you I, thought are relevant to startups before you started? No, 
Oh, I mean, relevant to startups. I mean, from the bookshelf behind, there's a lot of Jim Collins. There's a lot of, you know, I've seen you mention Think Bigger, a lot of startup business books. Um, I think, you know, when I think about like startup press, so like what immediately came to mind to, to Macario's point when you were asking the question is like, I often feel like all the news that I see are fundraising announcements and success stories. When the reality of seven years in a startup is like, you're slogging through it, right? And and I, I think those, you know, you, you can read a drizzly outcome story with Uber or a flip key trip advisor story and it seems great. But like when you really go back through the steps in the process to get there, it, it always seems at the end, like the path to get there was so clear when the reality is the path is never really that clear. And it's, um, you know, I always tell my teams like the highs are never as high as they are and the lows are never as low. It's this constant, just like trying to manage expectations, right? Like we raised a series A, like, well, let's not get too high. Like we're about to run out of money. Well, let's not get too concerned. And it's this constant flow. So I think, yeah, I just think unless you've lived it and you've been in it and you've woken up in the middle of the night, you know, thinking about those things, it's really hard to, to describe in an article. And it just seems to be celebrated an awful, awful, awfully lot more than I remember celebrating along the way. Now, don't get me wrong. I go back to Mark Harry with something you said, which is just like the people that you go through these things with, they're like more than coworkers, right? They're the best friends that you'll ever have for the rest of your life. So it's, it's all worth it. And I'm not saying that it's not, but it always, it always seems like it's also glamorous. And I, just don't <laughs> think, I don't think that's really true. Don't get too enamored with the, with the overnight success stories. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, or the foosball and the beer. And it's like, you know, the, yeah, it's, you got to come in and you got to come in and get the job done, figure out the problem. I think figure out the problems you're trying to solve and then understand that the problem you're trying to solve is going to change because you know, you might not have it exactly right. And so, yeah. yeah. The, the, the amount of stuff that uh, gets, um, gets noticed or discussed or reported on that doesn't matter is massive. Like the foosball stuff doesn't matter. F frankly, reporting that you raise money, money's fuel. You need fuel, but that's not a result, right? That's, uh, it's just fuel to, it's not a result. There's high five for the day that you got some fuel, but that's it, you know? You still got to drive somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, totally agree with everything Brian just said. Love that. Fuel is great, but you still have to drive somewhere. That's very interesting. <laughs> you know, many times the, the industry, the investors maybe will almost create that false sense of accomplishment for raising that round or that high valuation, while in fact you're still at like, you know, zero dollar ARR or your churn is like at 60s. And you just don't know because no one told you that. And even if they, they told you, you thought, oh, this is the outlier. This guy is just like, you know, this underdog. This is not the reality. Like, this is what's important. Um, and you don't hear it. Sometimes, you know, I have this, uh, I told my wife, you know, having this podcast started as a category creation ended up being like my therapy sessions where I'm just like talking <laughs> to find the founders and they just, you know, validate some of the shit and the, and the greatness that, that, you know, we go through. And, you know, not everyone understands this is, this is part of the life. doesn't matter founder or not, like you're in there in the battle, you're there in the, in the times where your runway is very short or you can't raise the round or whatever you went through. And uh, yeah, these people have been with you in that, in that moment. And the tech country, you know, the tech country reporter only talked to you after you already accomplished, you know, that next stage. 
trying to get the clicks trying to get the clicks yeah if um if you had uh well you know there are a few more things that we can accomplish first of all let's accomplish one more cheer thank you more you're you're already on it i'm on it you are on it, it up, so i did <laughs> very pleased with the amount of alcohol consumed thank you um <laughs> if you think about yourself 10 years ago 15 years ago, if you want to really go, uh, you know, long back, what is the one piece of advice that you think is the most important, maybe intimate, but the, by far the most important piece of advice that you really wish someone told you, and that there's a chance also that you'll consume it, because, you know, there's all kinds of piece of, piece of advice that unless you go through something, you're just going to reject it. It's like, no, nah, it's a cliche, it's bullshit, I'm not... Let's just wait until I, I really incorporate that one. But a piece of advice that someone who listens now will say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Even from my point of view, I don't have those guys 15 years experience. I still think it makes sense. And I'm going to think, think about this. Yeah. Cario or Brian, please. Yeah. So I think, um, and I still am trying to do this. I think there's someone on my team this week that will know that I still am, am not always living to it. But I remember reading a quote, Matt Sundin, he was the captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he talked about true leadership basically being like, making sure that your, your worst day is better than most people's best day. So like, just not, you know, we all wake up and feel like shit or aren't into it, right? Or are frustrated. Um, and that's not even to mention like everybody's also dealing with something that you don't know about, which is like another piece of advice. So there's kind of two, like you got to limit the downside, but then it's also like, you know, and I've had all my own personal shit that I've been dealing with. And then someone's coming at me at work and I'm thinking like, if you only knew what I was dealing with outside, you wouldn't come at me that way. So it's trying to put that back. But, but again, I think as a leader, whether it's a founder an executive or just a manager, like not having the really bad days, right? Having your bad days be better than most people's good days is like a really great thing to strive for. I think it's maybe unachievable. For me, it's unachievable, but it's a good like North Star goal. What's the question that you ask yourself when you try to achieve that that goal? Like, again, I think it's like, like if you just think everybody's gotten to the end of a day and, and they were like, that was a good day, right? And then like when you get to the end of the day and it's a bad day, it's usually not because you like didn't work hard, right? Like, and I'll use the example and, I, and, I, and like this week, it's like, I just was really frustrated and overtly frustrated on a Zoom. Not a great trait for like a leader of an organization. I apologize to the employee and like, it's just like, it was like I, I fucked it up and I got to the end of the day and I was like, you know, was I as good as I could have been today? And I was like, no, that was, that was really not good. Um, I'm not going to harp on it anymore. It's like you realize it, you acknowledge it. If if an apology is necessary, you make it and you move on. But it's like I think it's that more than anything. Like, and I don't do it every day that I have a good day. Like most days are, you know, usually like they're pretty good. Uh, but yeah, limiting the downside. Limiting the downside. And it sounds like you can, at least in many times, separate the ego, climb down from the tree, and say like, "Shit, sorry about that one," and you move on. The best people that I've ever worked with, the best leaders that I've ever had, that's the way they operated. That's And that's what I try to emulate, right? Because it's like, if there's just empathy and honesty, then um, it's really hard for people to get too frustrated. Like you can, you can make mistakes, 
But if you have empathy and honesty and can admit them and like be self-critical about it, then it's like hard for people to be like, that guy's really an asshole. I was an asshole for a minute, but I'm not always an asshole, right? Uh, uh, that's a great, definitely a quote for LinkedIn. Macario. <laughs> uh, yeah, th th there were two that kind of came to mind. Um, my, my personal trait, and I think it's very similar to what Brian had just said, uh, was patience. You know, uh, it, it's never as high, it's never as low. And, you know, there would be times where, you know, somebody would be acting a certain way and I'd, I'd wake up at four in the morning and my mind would race on it and churn and churn and churn and churn. And, um, and uh, you know, and back then I'd try and like, it was always, I would always try and attack something like immediately. And I realized that if you just let it rest, you get a little patience. It's never, it's never as bad. It also is never quite as good, but it's never as bad uh, as you think it, it as you think it is. And so patience, I think, was really was a key learning trait for me. But the the item that the, the second item, which is, I think is a little bit more uh, sort of a, a sort of company oriented, um, at any given point in time, in my in my opinion, in the life of a, of a smaller business, at any given point in time, there's typically one or two things that really really matter. I mean, like game changer matter. And there's a lot of things that can keep you busy that are urgent, but and it's so easy to fill your day with all of those other items because those big one or two big things are so big, but like they're the difference between, you know, one massive deal could be a game changer, right? It's a hundred million dollar valuation to a billion dollar valuation. It's like setting yourself up for an IPO, like those kinds of things. At any given point in time, I think there's one or two things that really, really matter. It's hard to identify them. And it's, it's even harder to say, I want to be laser focused. And all these people tell me I do all these other things, but I'm going to shut them out. And they're going to be pissed. They don't quite understand why, because it's important to them, but you got to be laser focused on the things that matter. Um, that's hard, but I, I found that that's, that, that has been um, sort of a successful rule in my, you know, in my experience. I want to follow up on that. You know, sometimes I remember having a meeting with uh, with two of my VPs and uh, we used to talk, you know, every week. Uh, we still talk every week. And uh, I remember in one of the meetings, we started talking about stuff and I was like, stop, stop, stop. Like, I'm sure there is a list of stuff you want to talk about. I am fairly certain there is one big thing you really want to talk about. And I told them, look, let's say you have 10 things to talk about. There's one thing you're extremely uncomfortable and that you want to leave to the end because you're really worried about what I'm going to say or what's going to be the result. Let's set that one as the first one. Even if we talk about it for 21 minutes, 29 minutes, sorry, that's going to be the one. And that, you know, one week later and the, the next few years until today, they would bring up the thing that they're most worried, the most problematic, the most uncomfortable to talk about because that's where the money is, right? That's where the gold is. How do you... First of all, do you agree? Other than, you know, I sound, I'm setting up for success because I see you both nodding. But two, like, how do you get the, the people to, to do it? Yourself and, and your, 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 your team to actually do it because it's not easy to, to follow up on what you said. I'll just, I'll just I'll let Macario answer because I think I'm interested in what he has to say. I'll, I'll piggyback on one thing he said, though, which is like sometimes it's hard to identify. So I think even in, our, in my new business, which is so new, we, we, we do have, we, we have seven full-time employees and a, bunch of, and, a, and a bunch of fantastic interns that help us, but you can only do so much with that many people. And we have a lot of things that we think are important. I think we're even now trying to figure out what, what is the thing, right? Which is sometimes a, a hard thing as well. So like, 
I have 29 minutes to spend out of 30. What is the thing I spend it on? And so even identifying it, I think at an early stage can, can be a challenge, but I'll, I'll, McCary, I'll let you kind of handle uh, that. It, 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 it's very, very hard. It's very hard. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the, the burden of the CEO, right? Is like, is to be able to provide that degree of leadership. And, and, and uh, you know, if you step back and, and, um, and say, well, you know, just think about your business and, and you think about you're talking to somebody who's not involved in your day to day. And, you know, they ask you the question, well, what's, what can you, what do you need and what could you do right now to turn this to a 10 X business, five X business, two X business. Um, and if you sit back and you reflect on that, you, you, something will tend to emerge. It may not be the, the final thing, but it's like, it's kind of the line of thinking to help sort of guide towards that. There may be other things that get in the way of that. I have, I'm having a series of outages. We're having a huge scale problem. It doesn't really matter what my 10x growth is. My house is on fire, right? The number one thing is put out the fire. Like, so it, it changes. It's not always growth related. I'm using growth as an example. Um, but, you know, if you start thinking that way, it, and it is really hard, man. I, I don't, there's no secret magic. I don't know. Like it, it's, it's just, it's just good leadership. If you can identify it and you just keep people focused, keep yourself focused. I have trouble focusing on the one thing. And then, you know, I just espouse this as, as a, as an idea and say, we all should do this, but it's like, it's freaking hard, man. Um, Cause it's just easy to knock off all the other stuff that's kind of happening throughout the day. So I don't, I don't have any magic advice uh, outside of to say it's uh, uh, if we, if you really step back and separate yourself from the day-to-day -day business and you look to elsewhere, pretend you're talking to your wife, an investor, whomever, a mentor, and, uh, and you ask yourself that question, what would the answer be? And chances are you would kind of, you would kind of know, because if you, at a, at a stage of the business, you would essentially start to understand the business well enough, you kind of know that things are starting to make a real difference. Very interesting. You know, I do have a, you, you mentioned a mentor. I have a, I have a coach, uh, Mark Oregon. He's the founder of Eloqua. And Many times he tells me like, you know, like this is the time, this is a good time for you to step out of, you know, step, zoom out of the business from the operational part and think about, you know, how to operate on the business, like not within the business, but outside. You know, everyone has their thing. Some people do some, smoke some weed, some people do some shrooms, some people, whatever they do, go some vipassana, but do it. Don't, it's, it's cool. Like take it to the uh, pause and think about a business in ways that you don't usually allow yourself to because it's crucial otherwise you'll keep keep maintaining the, the small details um super interesting hey we're we're one, one minute ahead if there's one thing uh you want to leave our audience with our listeners with uh before you, before you finish what would that be uh, makario you first anything um yeah i mean if in the, in the world of business, especially in startups, intimately know your customers better than they know themselves. That 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 never well that will never steal you wrong, right? Um, just get to know them, put in the time, put in the effort. Love that, Brian. I think I think I would just I don't know the the exact demographics of your audience, but I would just say like go for it. You know, like for people that are thinking about getting involved in startups or people that are thinking about starting their own companies. Like, I just think my whole life, you know my parents and everything else, I was sort of encouraged to like, take those shots, calculated risks, but like do the, do the work to figure out that it's a shot you want to take and then take it. And the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out and you move on. And I think a lot of people, whether it's moving to a new destination or starting a business, they get caught up in that. Super cool. Very fortunate. The great parents. 
Awesome. Well, with that, I'm going to finish this episode. Brian and Macario, I really fucking enjoy. Excuse me. I keep saying and keep cursing, but I really enjoyed this, uh, this, this podcast episode. Uh, I really enjoyed both of the, your candor and, uh, and all of the insights. So thank you. I really appreciate it uh, legitimately. And um, yeah, that's it. All right. Uh, thank you, Thanks, Gail. Guys. Very nice to meet you, Brian. Yeah, cheers. Take care again. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.